Tina Koto, Wellington. How are you going out there? Oh my gosh, winter has set in. What about you, Perrine? Welcome to B-Side Stories on Access Radio, 106.1 FM. How's your winter cracking in? Uh, <laughs> I'm going all right. Yeah, yeah. I'm still, still not wearing gloves on the bike, so <laughs> that's... A good sign, or I don't know. I think that means that you're a tough, a tough New Zealand <laughs> yeah. Sheila. I've got, I've got my gloves out. I've got to say, they they came out this morning. Right, I'm going to end up with some leathery hands. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great. Well, I hope you are keeping warm out there, Wellington, and welcome for another exciting show on B sides. Uh, we're all excited to be in the room this evening. Perrine, who are you going to be chatting to this evening? Okay, so we have Bruce Foster here, who. Um, I've called an artist and curator, but maybe we'll ask Bruce in a bit um, how he likes to describe himself. Um, So that's in the first half of the show. We'll be hearing what he's up to. And in the second half of the show... Well, I'm pretty excited because um, I've got the team from Kai Cycle in here, Sheldon Levitt and Kate Walmsley. We're about to have a chat on, uh, I think, one of Wellington's most exciting institutions I'm going to call them but yeah urban farming it's the way forward awesome so shall we hand straight over to you Perrine to have a have a get us into the show tonight let's do it great <coughs> here you go kia ora Bruce kia ora Perrine thank you for coming in tonight and just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself including how do you describe yourself and your work? <laughs> <laughs> That's very tricky. Um, every few years I tend to reinvent myself uh, inadvertently and, and begin doing some other kind of activity. But um, originally I was a structural engineer, so I've got quite a sciencey kind of background, and I worked at that for a couple of years and then travelled to London and discovered the Photographer's Gallery. I'd always been interested in photography as a child, and Dad had bought a camera uh, when I was very young, so I always commandeered that camera. And the Photographer's Gallery in London, which was showing the very best of European and American British photography of the 1970s, just sort of swept me away. Mm. So since that time, I've called myself a photographer, um, but, um, you know, now I guess my... My my work over the last um, f- well since what 2011 has been mainly around making art with photography and with video, including work that in an exhibition that you co uh, curated um, that's on over in the Wadarapa at the moment, which. Um, I didn't tell you yet, but I got to go and see that in the weekend. <laughs> oh, good, great! <laughs> wow. You- can you tell us a bit about what you were aiming for with the exhibition there and how you did it? Well, in, in, I'll go back to 2011, the Kumadek art project, uh, where I was one of nine artists that sailed to the Ryle Island, sailed to the Kumadeks. And, and so, for those who don't know, because I always get a bit hazy on this too, so the Kumadeks are... Well, if you think... Of a, of a straight line between, say, Auckland and Tonga, Ryle Island is about halfway between them. Mm-hmm. And the Kumadex is a something like 600,000 square kilometres of ocean that we have guardianship over. That is, we, you know... 
Aotearoa New Zealand. And uh, this trip was uh, sponsored by Pew Charities. Um, they were working in New Zealand along with a gr um, World Wildlife Fund and uh, some other environmental groups to try to, they were lobbying for a, a, a an ocean sanctuary to be created um, in that region. Mm. So that that's what, I guess, began my recent work in environmental uh, photography and art making. And that became a very successful, the work that came from those nine artists became a very successful touring exhibition that toured all the provincial galleries in New Zealand, uh, Wellington City Gallery, it went to Chile, uh, to Rapa Nui, Easter Island, Tonga, um, Numia, you know, it, or various, um, various uh, iterations of that exhibition. And so when it was showing in Ashburton, a couple of locals approached me after a, a floor talk that several of us artists gave down there, and they, they sort of said, oh, we'd love it if there was a project like this about rivers in Canterbury. And um, so I, I thought that fresh water would be something I'd kind of be, be, get involved with. I, many years ago, I did a book with David Young called Faces Down the River. And um, I wanted to get back to freshwater issues. And uh, so I discussed it with Shireen Kosraviani, who's the director at the Ashburton Gallery, the possibility of a Kumadex-style project. And she said, yeah, let's do it. So uh, we got 13 artists on board, had a seminar in Christchurch, uh, at which we were had presentations from uh, people whose lives have been deeply enmeshed with water and its issues over the over the years. And then we did a road trip around Canterbury, which was a real eye-opener. And a lot of artwork was produced. We had a show in Canterbury at, at the Ashburton Gallery. And then uh, it came to Hastings and um, Aratoy in, in Masterton were very, very keen to, to get it, but the timing didn't quite work out. So Greg O'Brien, who was one of the artists, and I decided we'd curate a new show uh, using the same artists, but all new work, basically. And um, Aratoy were delighted, and, you know, I think it's, it's a fabulous gallery uh, with a... A lot of water issues in Wairarapa, not unlike those of Canterbury. So I guess, coming back to your question, <laughs> why? Well, the Kumite art project seemed to be very effective in raising consciousness around the country of the fact that we actually had guardianship over this huge area of ocean that most of us didn't know where it was. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Pew had done polling and found that the visibility or, or knowledge of the Kumadex had risen from something like 6% to 60% in that period of time. Wow. So I guess um, with the water project, we were having had a similar kind of attitude. Maybe it will help raise um, consciousness. You know, it'll contribute to the, the voices that are being raised around the country around issues um, to do with water, yeah. So 
you so this is kind of inspired by almost environmental activism. I'm just wondering how much the environmental themes are a driving force or how much if you ever have to kind of pull yourself back from being a bit preachy because it's getting in the way of your art. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a big question for me, you know, all the time. Um, I'd, I'd be really interested in your take on the exhibition, actually. Um, yeah, I find I can be a bit preachy, personally. <laughs> and um, I'm kind of torn between using art as a, as a medium and, I guess... Um, documentary and I in, in one of the works that video work that you would have seen where there are sort of eight video channels at Aratoy <clears throat> is that the one can you just describe uh, that a little bit yep so there's eight tracks of video being shown on eight different devices ranging from a very very small iPhone 5 through to a 60 inch television screen yeah, and they're kind of placed and over the floor. They're, they're kind of heaped up. Yeah. So um, my thinking there was, well, and each each track shows a different aspect um, of some of the most worrying aspects of uh, water pollution, and uh, that I've sort of come to recognise since working on this project in Canterbury. For example. Um, there is um, one of the one of the big threats to health is from. Uh, look, I risk probably going down a bit of a rabbit tunnel here. <laughs> Go for it. Let's head down there. <laughs> okay. Well, the cyanotoxins are given off by cyanobacterial blooms. So there's a tract there that represents that. There's a tract that represents um, pesticides in the atmosphere. So when when farmers lay pesticides on their land and Dairy farmers use a huge quantity of them. Um, around about, roughly, science tells us around about nine percent evaporates. So that's got to come down at some time. So it gathers in the clouds and it comes down in the rain. Um, there is bacteria that is um, fatal to dogs, for example, in waters. That is the growth of which is enhanced by nutrients in the water, excess nutrients. Another track shows the effect of on excess of nutrients on the weed in a waterway. Uh, there's another work that looks at plastic in water, and uh, there's one that kind of looks at climate change. And then finally, um, right in the centre, in a tiny little iPhone, is a uh, a little kind of loop of my new granddaughter in the bath, and. Um, I wanted this work to feel um, like it's been discarded and that's because um, the science around waters and the negative effects of, of um, agrochemicals uh, has been known for years and years but successive governments have kind of turned their, turned their back on it and basically disregarded the advice they've had um, as to how this is something that really needs to be reined in or we're going to be in deeper and deeper trouble as years goes by, go by. And um, the people who are going to be suffering most are going to be the children of today. And um, so my grandchild is going to be one of them. So 
I guess that is probably an overtly political work mm. uh, compared to the photograph of the the boat that is in a toxic um, river. The boat's half filled with water, and in the boat is a purple baler, which is filled with water. Mm. So that's but just that's just something I came across um, <laughs> when I first went down there to begin work on the project. I didn't know where I'd start. So I started in the Silwyn River and I just went up Stop Bank and looked down and there it was. And uh, that photograph seemed to sum up the human condition, um, you know, with regard to the environment. Yeah. Um, that one for our listeners is linked on our Facebook page. It came up when we had your website on there. Um, <clears throat> beautiful image. But, yeah, I think that's something that surprises me often when I see work by artists like you, you're when you're sharing an environmental message, and sometimes it's about the damage we're doing to the places that we live and visit. But somehow the damage often looks quite beautiful, <laughs> and it's almost, you know, I think you have some with. Um, plastic bags trapped in waterways and it looks really lovely and then do you sometimes worry that it's too aesthetically pleasing? <laughs> uh, uh, no I don't because I guess what I'm trying to do with that is create a tension between what you see and what you feel or what you know um, and I find that's a way of actually engendering some kind of reaction, I guess. Well, it does for me. Mm. Um, one of my friends described them as sort of moving photographs, and in, in a sense they are. They are beautiful and deliberately. Um, I guess I want you to look at them, but I also want you to feel that tension of, my God, I'm looking at this plastic, and yet I'm having this... Um, uh, you know, I'm having a, an aesthetic experience here, but this is what I'm looking at is actually horrific. So mm. um, that I want you to feel uncomfortable because, because <laughs> of that kind of yeah. dichotomy, if you like. Okay, achieved. In this. <laughs> um, and that actually links to, um, we had a really interesting interview on B-Side Stories a few weeks ago with Professor James Renwick, who, and they were talk he was talking about... Um, you know, you can communicate the science all you like, but to get people interested and motivated to make changes, you need to kind of really tap into the emotional. And so there, um, there was an art project that he was talking about. Don't remember the name of it at the moment, but check the back catalogue if you want to listen to that one. Um, <clears throat> so as part of this kind of activism, you're really interested in the role of the government and how decisions are made relating to the environment. And I guess I'm just wondering, it, it, and actually there was a great, um, there was a great part of the exhibit up in Masterton, there's just a sign, it was, is it you and McLeod? And it just says, swimmable, weightable, lamentable, just <laughs> spells it out when it's talk, you know, when the government's setting um, targets for the health of our river yeah. systems. And so I guess what I am interested in is how your interest in the environment got so closely linked to the 
um, the governance side of things and what you think of the kind of current situation. Right, that was actually Greg O'Brien's work, the one oh, you, you mentioned, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess it's come from a couple of ye years now of research into this area. Um, I'm a, a bit of a junkie for sci reading science and reading uh, original research. And, um, and also thinking a lot about um, climate change. I did a documentary about climate change around 12 years ago when there was a, an international conference in Wellington and interviewed um, about 10 of these experts on climate change. And they said then that we had 10 years which is, you know, we've, we've passed that date mm -hmm. to, to make some significant changes. There was one man, Lord, I was going to say Oxbridge or Oxborough, who actually had been a CEO for BP, but he was now, you know, I guess pretty frightened by um, the future prospects of um, the planet. And um, he made the point then that it's not until the man in the street, the woman in the street, and the child in the street uh, write to their MP and um, demand action that we would have action. Soon after that, I was working on a film for the Ministry uh, for the Environment about sustainability, and I interviewed a a researcher into the alternate different forms of dairy farming. And um, and when he said that, when he told me about the damage that industrial dairy farming was causing, I'd never really even heard the term industrial dairy, or industrial applied to farming before. I can remember my horror in saying, but, but you know, that can't be allowed to happen. I, you know, what, how, how can it be stopped? And he also said, well, it won't be until the public of New Zealand stand up and say enough that it will stop. And I think what we've been seeing in recent years, uh, the last couple of years, um, the clamour for it to stop is becoming more and more vocal. And, you know, when you look at, when you look at greenhouse gas emissions and per capita, how high we are in New Zealand, about fifth in the world, I think. And when you think that those emissions are coming actually from very few individuals. There are 10,000 dairy farms in New Zealand. Some people, individuals own 100 dairy farms. And when you think of the emissions that those people are producing and the, profiting, the profit that they're making from those emissions um, indirectly, then I think um, this is something that only government can really deal with. We need strong politicians, we need strong government uh, they need to, you know, clearly the current government needs a much bigger mandate um, in order to be able to be more draconian. You know, I think um, we need a draconian government on this. You know, we've, we're already past that decade mm -hmm. limit that those scientists said we had. Now we're talking about another decade. And um, so this is sort of, sort of stuff that keeps me up at night. And so what you're trying to do here directly or not, is to get that groundswell that demands the draconian government? 
Well, I, not, not with the work I have been doing, but I think with my next project, I think I want to be a lot more, be able to be a lot more outspoken. And, uh, you know, I've been, I, I don't think art is necessarily the approach to take with that. I don't think, I think it's very difficult for art to be activist because it's almost like a, can be a bit of a contradiction. Um, because to be activist, you really need to be understood by a large um, and be accessible to a large uh, proportion of the population. Mm, but it's also a way of connecting. So. It is, it, you know, it all it all helps. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess it's whether it's hard to it's hard to know how much you're achieving unless you get results like you did with the Kermadex and people's knowledge of the Kermadex going going up. Um, I guess I'm interested in your kind of collaborative work that you've been doing. I also should ask you about this next project that you just mentioned, <laughs> but is that another collaborative work? Or? It will be collaborative yeah. with, um, it'll be all kind of science-led, but... Uh, as James Renwick pointed out, science by itself, you know, the numbers, the data doesn't actually communicate. Um, so I want to look, explore other ways of presenting that kind of information and, um, and hopefully uh, get it on national um, news um, website, you know, websites, yeah. R rather than it being a kind of documentary, it'll be a... It'll be a a series of mini documentaries and a whole lot of episodes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still to do the prototype for it. So, okay, I, so I won't rather... ask you too much about <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so if when you do do collaborations, do you find that it changes the way that you work quite a lot? Like when you go on a trip like you did to Canterbury, did being there with the other artists change the type of things you might produce? I don't think it changes what I do, but it's enormously encouraging to have that kind of collegial support and energy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that trip, it became quite moving because, you know, we're putting a group of people together, most many of whom didn't know each other. And we were all there for different reasons. And, you know, and sharing that can be quite a... Um, quite emotional and uh, and um, invigorating, I guess. Or, or you know, I, I think working in one's own as an artist um, of any persuasion would, must be extremely difficult. And um, I think through working with, working collectively, perhaps more so than collaboratively, because if we're working collaboratively, we're working on an artwork together. Some artists do that very well. Uh, this is more collectively, and uh, there was no, just as with the Kermadec project, there were no directives to any of the artists. Mm. Uh, it was simply, would you like to do this? And, um, and, and we would have conversations about our own um, ideologies, maybe, or maybe not, but uh, there was no kind of group think about it uh, everybody um, nobody asked the others what they were going to be doing for example in their works or or what their personal politics were like I mean, politics didn't wasn't didn't really come into that trip so but it, nonetheless it is 
you know, you can do you can do things as a collective that you can't do as an individual. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the time we've got for today, unfortunately. But if people are listening and they're interested, I would highly recommend a trip over to see the exhibition at Aratoi. It's called... Waterway. Waterway. And that is on for a... For until August 4th. Yeah. Okay. It's... Um, not preachy at all feeling. It's very, it's beautiful and engaging, in my opinion. Thanks, Perrine. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Bruce. Thanks.